Hey everyone, Steve here. Before we get to the podcast that I know you guys want to listen to, I've got some exciting news. My new book, Peak Performance, is out June 6th. And in celebration of that, we're going to run some really cool pre-order bonus prizes. So if you order the book before June 6th, you can get things like autographed Neely Spence Gracie or Natasha Rogers pictures, um, a drum kit signed by Matt Billingsley, who is a drummer for Taylor Swift, Dave Epstein autographed book of the sports gene, Ryan Holiday autographed book, Alex, Alex Hutchinson autographed book, uh, Alexi Pappas signed a poster of her movie track count for us. So that and a whole bunch of other things that I'm giving away for free if you just buy the book, like training programs of some of my elite athletes, my cheat sheet guide to coaching, and a bunch of insider coaching stuff. So head on over to scienceofrunning.com. That should be up or will be up very shortly. And please consider pre-ordering, buying this book. The, the book allows me to do projects like this podcast here and articles on the blog um, that you hopefully frequent for free. So without that, that income and that availability, I wouldn't be able to put out all this information. Plus, I spent over two years working with uh, my co-author, Brad Stolberg, scouring articles, books, talking to over 50 world-class performers. And I really think the, the, the result and the information is worthwhile. So do me a favor, head over to scienceofrunning.com, check out those pre-orders, and please consider buying uh, some books. All right, without further ado, on to the podcast. Thanks a lot, guys. Welcome back to another episode of On Coaching with Magnus and Marcus. I'm Steve Magnus, the coach at the University of Houston and author of the new book, Peak Performance. Check it out. It is sponsoring our podcast, apparently. And I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, John Marcus. Coach of High Performance West. John, we're back at it. Back to give the people what they want. You know it's track season, folks, because the pods become a little less frequent. But that's okay, because Steve and I have skin the game. We're at meets, you know, we're at the practice track, and most mostly we're traveling. But wouldn't trade the season for anything. That's right. The travel of the track coach, something that no one ever explains. This is actually being done in between my own working of the hammer throw at uh, a home meet so life of a track coach you do everything mm -hmm. uh, um and speaking of that life today's topic experience versus powerpoints now what do we mean by that john okay i'm getting up on my you know high horse do it um, you know ibc you know here's my quick rant it's like it's exciting to go to coaching conferences and connect with peers and colleagues and people in the field. And it's exciting to sit in a room and, you know, be talked at with all this new and exciting information. And it's exciting, you know, and Steve is definitely one who's a proponent of this, to post this new awesome study that shows XYZ stimulus creates XYZ response from some scientific article. However, that is not the thing. It, the thing is being out on the track, coaching, you know, problem solving in real time and getting that experience and that body of work to know when to employ and not to employ certain techniques. And that that's really the difficulty of it, right? It's like the best writers write a lot less words, but they have more potency because they have uh, sanded away 90 nine of the other words they could have used to create that sentence or that that point and so sometimes we get excited but then you have this abundance of powerpoints and abundance of studies and you're like oh how do i apply these models how do i apply 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 and the question is is like well what are you trying to do what are you keeping score of are you keeping a score of how many how much knowledge you are collecting or are you keeping a score of are you getting your athletes or athletes competitively ready for the races or the competitions that matter most? Yeah, you know, to me, it all comes down to applicability. Whenever I, you know, I, everyone knows, like, I'm a science nerd, I'm a research nerd, like, I love looking at stuff and seeing, 
all right, look at this new shiny object or that new shiny study. And But I always come back down to, to the one question, and that's uh, what is the impact to me and my athletes on the track? Like, how does this make us get better? And I think, you know, from a coaching standpoint, it's really easy to just get excited about things and be like, oh, my gosh, this is the next thing. Or like, this is the key that I learned at this conference. And then, you know, to go home with it and not do anything with it or not be able to use it. And it just becomes this like cool, interesting factoid, this cool, interesting tidbit without, you know, putting it to work. And, and when I see this kind of experience versus PowerPoint style of, of coaching, and the point is, is... When I look back at my own coaching development and when I, when I started getting into coaching and going on presentations and giving presentations and it always came across as, oh my gosh, like in this hour long presentation, this guy has it figured out and these are the answers and this is the program I need to do. And then you go back home and you start applying it and you're like, what, what, well, you know, A didn't equal B or B plus C didn't equal D. Like, what's the deal? Why didn't this work? And I, I I think that's where it, that almost false reality that we're, we're given that, hey, just follow this program, just do what I do. We, we have to almost unravel that as coaches as we get in with skin in the game, start coaching and realize the complexity of what we're doing. The problem is models are static. You know, it's done under a certain set of conditions, whether it's, uh, you know, study that's been repeated time and time again, but still a relatively small sample set, right? And I I don't care if you're doing a study of 10,000 people. That's a really small sample set in the, you know, ethos of time. Like over the course of the hundreds of years that we have been evolving and running and sprinting and jumping and throwing and and, you know, the decade, the decades and decades and decades we've been doing it for competition and athletic purposes, still a very small sample set. You know, so to me, it's like the most critical thing is knowing that while the models are static, the reality is coaching is very dynamic. The athletes you're working with are very dynamic. Things fluctuate and change all the time. And, you know, yes, it's good to have an ideal in place, kind of like, you know, a platonic ideal about this clear vision about what you you know, can do and help craft and that place you can get that athlete to. And, but that's the key difference. The place you can get that athlete to not all 800 meter runners should train like this. All 1500 meter runners should train like this. These are the things that make a 1500 meter person and any person we can just fit you in and you're going to be a 1500 meter star if you do this program. And you know, that to me is snake oil you know, without a doubt. And it's tough because anytime you go to the conference, the whole idea is to spark thought. It's to spark like, okay, they, you know, presented on this, they had this finding, you know, and nine times out of 10, I completely disagree with what I was just presented. (laughs) You know, nine times out of 10, I'm like, I don't, I don't think this is right. And I don't think this is correct, but I'm willing to have an open mind and digest it and process it before I make that um, judgment on it. Because, you know, at the end of the day, the whole point about experience is you, as we said many times before on this podcast, is you know more what not to do than what you do know to do. And by knowing more what not to do, you arrive at the correct thing to do quicker. And that's really the job of the coach, in my opinion, is to be kind of that puzzle master who can help guide an athlete and say, well, you know, it could be all these things, but have we explored this? Or this might be the best way to attack this or improve this based on how I know you and what we've done and where we're coming from. And, you know, I, I think Steve can kind of speak to this, and I've spoken to this many times. Like, you know, I he just had Natasha Rogers, you know, run an incredible race at the women's or USATF Women's Half Marathon Championship. And I was there in person. I watched it. It was like, very compelling. And I mean, this had been on a result in a race that had come on the backs of, I know, many a long heart-to-hearts, many a workout. Steve had been telling me for 
months that Natasha was mega fit for months before this happened. And I was like, okay, okay. And they, and I'm like, well, it's not happening on race day, dude. What's, what's going on? And it's like, oh yeah, you know, and then finally it clicked. And I let you talk a little bit more about that because that is to me the actualization of the dynamic coaching and having skin in the game versus just saying, oh, well, she's done these workouts. She's going to be just ready to go when she shows up on race day. Yeah, it's it's called reality, right? <laughs> yeah, it's hard. Um, <laughs> it it's it's reality, and I think that a lot of times, like when we get into coaching, we live in like this idealized dream world. Like, oh no, that's not going to happen. To me, I'm going to figure out, and I'm going to make sure my athletes are always ready to go. And as you you start to coach, you you get into reality, and you realize. You know, getting people fit is the easy part. Okay. Getting them to run fast on, on a specific race day in whatever conditions are prevalent is the difficult part. And I think that example is a, uh, is a wonderful one because I have been telling you for months. I'm like, Natasha's fit. Like she's killing workout. She's, she's doing things that she hasn't done before and she feels good doing it. So I know she's going to race well. Um, but, you know, she barely made the World Cross team, had a good solid race at World Cross, um, has had some other races not so good, a 920 something 3K indoors along the way. And she's maybe gained a little fitness from there, but it's not crazy gains. I mean, it's, she's still the same runner. And I think the difference here is that, you know, after, as I told, uh, you, uh, last week, after, that 920 something, I endorsed 3K and then barely making the, the world cross team. Uh, we just kind of had a, you know, on, on the phone conversation where it's just, you know, laying out the pieces and saying, all right, like you're fit, you're getting super fit, like things are in place, like what's the deal? And essentially giving ourselves no excuses, um, to risk it. And to go for it and see what's there. And on some occasions, it hasn't been there. And on those occasions, like she ran solidly, but no one else in the world paid attention. And then on the day when, you know, she saw what was there and got to show and exploit and use her fitness, like everyone's like, oh my gosh, she ran amazing. She did great. And she did. It was a fantastic race for her and guts for putting it out there. But what people fail to realize are the numerous times where she's gone for it and then blown up and had to pick herself off the ground and say, all right, next time we're going to get after it and, and do the same thing and it's going to be there at some time. And I think that is a perfect illustration of the reality of fitness is, is we have this misconception that if we do A, B, and C workout, if we follow those PowerPoint slides that we all put up of progressions of workouts if we can nail those things and come race day like we're going to be good but the body is a very fickle precisely and fickle thing <laughs> well it's the body mind connection right yeah. you know we again i've said this many a times we traffic in the metabolism and energy system we traffic in the body a lot and because we have this feeling as coaches that we can control this i have a you know a prescription of reps and sets and you know volume and all this stuff and i can control as a coach and manipulate and you know create this stimulus and voila you're going to be fit but the thing is is we've come to a culture where fit and being fit creates this air of entitlement as in oh you should just be able to replicate it any day no matter what or you should be able to directly transfer this because you've been doing this in practice you know and the mind and body connection that inner game is the key to consistent repeatability to express your fitness regardless the circumstances of the race and you see how many times people run really well in a time trial scenario only to not be as effective or even in the conversation of competitive in a championship scenario and i'm still a purist i am i'm still naive i still believe in competition I think competition is the ultimate crucible. And I'm always a fan of race, 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 race. Because as long as the athlete is excited and there's a spark of joy to race for them, then there's something to learn from it. You know, on the tail end of that, you know, Tara Welling, who had won the that race last year, 
and set that course record who Natasha was within, you know, a whisper of. This year coming in, not quite as fit. She had two weeks off or two months off from injury, you know, stress fracture in her pelvis. And it was like, well, do you even want to race? You know, you're not 100%. And she's like, yeah, there's still a lot to learn. And if, you know, if I go out, I have a better idea where my fitness is. I'm like, you know, it's it's worth the effort. And so a lot of people would say, oh, well, she finished eighth. What's wrong? Nothing's wrong. Actually, it was, she, it was a great race. It was awesome. She was very positive. Typically, what happens when she gets in a point where she's not competitive, she starts to mentally check out, have a lot of negative self-talk. But she was able to stay very focused and process-oriented be a lot of positive self-talk. She was in no woman's land for a long time. You know, she just ran out of fitness because she went out in like 5.08 for the first mile, which she doesn't have the fitness to do right now. And so she experienced, you know, high degree of acidosis and, you know, lactic burn at the end there. And it just was not a place she's been recently in her training. But throughout it, she left with a very positive vibe. And that, to me, warmed my heart and said, okay, we're on the right path. Now, you can, the continuation to race is exactly this. Go out, try a different strategy, see where you're at. And if you fail, you extract as much learnings as you can from that failure. And that, to me, is what warms my heart as a true champion, someone who can win them and someone who can lose them, like a, a wrong Clark, so to speak. He would go out, set a world record on a Saturday, and then the following Wednesday, run a club race and lose the five guys in the 800, you know, but he loved competition. And that to me is sometimes where we as coaches and sports scientists and, you know, very intelligent people, very clever people miss the boat, you know, when it's all about, you know, saying you're, you're just good to go because you've done the physical work, but you haven't sat down and, and addressed the hard emotional labor to get your people ready to that next level, that's where the disconnect happens. And it's tough because we don't have neat models. You can't put emotional readiness in an Excel sheet. You can't track it. You can't say, hey, we're going to track today and um, see where your emotional readiness is at. Okay, let's go. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But that's where the art and the relationship side is very critical. Yeah. You know, and I – I mean, Steve, you can talk to this too um, as well. And before I let Steve jump in, I've gone back at an athlete's um, suggestion and started to reread uh, the inner game of tennis, which I read like 10 years ago. So it was long overdue. And I mean, it's a very small book, 130 pages, but very, very deep and very um, dense with a lot of this type of wisdom where it's less about the judgment of right or wrong, less about here's the model you need to adhere to this model or else you're you're bad and you're not good, and more about letting the ego go, noticing, and allowing people to become their best selves and who they're meant to be rather than trying to mold them into some artificial model they could never um, uh, aspire to, really. And it's been, I mean, I read it one night. It was just like, oh yeah, this is a great book. I forgot it's in my top 10. <laughs> Because it's been eight years. So I really suggest everyone who is listening, just go pick it up. There's so many copies out there, 130 pages, and each one is worth its weight in gold and then some. Yeah, that's uh, that's a classic. I read that as, I think, a college freshman. Um, and back then I wasn't reading much, so that shows you how good it was. Oh, it's worth a reread every year. It's one, it's yeah. put it into one of my reread this every year, um, you know, shelves on my library. Yep, yep, I'm with you a hundred percent. But I think, you know, there's a lot of lessons in that book, and a lot of a lot of lessons there that you said, especially on judgment. And I think that what happens is that fake reality, or that yeah, that fake reality that we create as coaches, or that fake certainty that our training is going to lead to know some certain outcome harms athletes too because it creates this perception that oh okay like if i do this training then i'm gonna get this result and when the athlete doesn't get that exact result it causes them to freak out panic or start doubting themselves now i'm i'm sure as a a fellow uh college and former college coach you you can have as many stories as i have when uh when you have athletes race that first race and they go coach what happened like i ran two seconds three seconds four seconds off my pr like i i thought i felt good i thought i was ready to go um but obviously i'm not 
And it's like, dude, it's January 1st. <laughs> well, and it's, and it's not the thing. Yeah. It's not the thing. The thing is, okay, I'm going to get on my high horse again and rant. The thing is not show up every time and run fast. Like, this is why I say I believe in the spirit of competition. The, the thing is beat people. Show up and beat people, not not beat the clock, not, oh, hey, I got a PR, but I got 12th place. It's like, so, like, go back to the lab, go back to the workshop, go back to the track, you know, make better art, work at making better art, and show up and beat people. And if you beat people, people will take notice. Best example I can give is Woody Kincaid. Woody Kincaid, you know, helped recruit that kid when I was an assistant coach at University of Portland five, six years ago. You know, he was just a competitive snot. This kid has not won any NCAA championships. Is not, you know, he's had one or two All-Americans. Not really that impressive. But the kid just knows how to beat people. And he doesn't care. And he's, you know, it's been marvelous to watch him blossom under Rob Collins, Tulage, and, you know, even with Jerry Schumacher now. But the kid has a contract from Nike. He shouldn't. <laughs> he shouldn't have a contract at all. But he does because... The right at the right place at the right time, he showed up and said, "I'm going to just beat people," and that's what it's about. And I champion, you know, Jerry for having his wits to, you know, recruit and get that guy on the team for Bowerman, because I mean, he, it's a diamond in the rough. And I was telling people years before, like, watch out for this guy. He's a competitive snot. He's going to do something at some time, and it'll be out of nowhere because. That's just what he's about. He doesn't care. He doesn't. She just shows up. Oh, I'm in the race. Well, I'm in the race, so I might as well just be as many people as I can and try to win. It's very simple. It's not about time. So, okay, and rant. <laughs> All right, soapbox done. But you know that's like a great point because you know if you were to ask any college, uh, good college coach at at recruiting, you know the thing that we look at when I go to high school races or I go to. Um, you know, go watch the state meet is how people compete. You know, if they have that inner competitiveness, then that's great. They're going to do well. Like I can get any, we can get anybody fit, but it's really hard to train that just like instinct to win or that instinct to compete as best as you can and put yourself in position to run well. That is very hard to, to get out of. And it's, it's sad for me. I'll go on a tangent. It's sad for me now to see a lot of these high school races that are set up. I'm not opposed to high school kids running fast. I mean, I tried to do it when I was there in high school, so I, I can't. But it, it it's almost like high school races in a lot of cases have been set up time trials just like their college brethren and just like their professional brethren. And while the, the fast times are nice to see... I think we're missing out on creating those stories and those storylines of people competing. And I think developing those skills, those racing skills is, uh, is a step that every runner has to take. Okay. Timeout jeans real quick. How many sub four minute milers, high school sub four minute milers have won an NSA championship outdoors? Like not Alan Webb. No. You know, not Matthew Maton, not Lucas Verbeckus, not I'm you know, it's like time out. <laughs> so this is another one of my pet peeves too, is exactly this. This, you know, over optimization of high school racing for that fast mark. Um, you know, who is that kid from Idaho, you know, who ran sub four last year in, in at a meet here in Oregon, went to Penn State and is no longer in the NSA system, right? Legowski, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I mean, no hate, no hate at all. Yeah. Yeah. No hate at all. Like, it's exciting that high school kids are running this fast. Yes. But so we're optimizing and over optimizing them in high school. And I, you know, give uh, hats off to like Elise Cranny and, you know, um, uh, Ella Donahue and uh, Christina Agragon and all those people who went to college because college is very important because there's ups and downs. Because my there's the up and downs high school you know the crucible of high school it's like well you're the best out of a million of these you know young men and women who are doing the sport right now but also too the what's the long tail and i very rarely have seen that translation happen in american middle distance running where they were rock stars in high school 
and they translated to being rock stars in college and or as pros. One of the few is like Ajay Wilson. You know, Allen, after he kind of went through some ups and downs and left college, yes, he, he translated for a little while as well. And I mean, German Fernandez, that's a heartbreak right there. One of the most uberly talented people in middle distance in the last decade, you know, or 20 years to come out of American high school distance running. Never, never won an NCAA title. I mean, uh, excuse me, an uh, American USA title, never made an Olymp- Olympic team, even though he was an NCAA champion his freshman year in the 15. Like, it's a very difficult thing to do. And often the, you know, comfort of models, the comfort of PowerPoints, the comfort of that static education is it tra- is we want to believe this predictability. If they've done this much work at this speed and these many reps and this much volume for X, Y, Z long a time, if it fits my periodization chart, and even though your periodization chart may be found on the best physiological principles, you know, it's a mix of like Bosch and Bondarchuk and you know, the tiered system and this and that in the weight room. And then you got some Lydiard and Daniels and Bowerman things all kind of mixed in there. And, you know, oh, I took some from Magnus's book and it's, it's great. I'm stroking every system. If, and if every box is checked, still you can't predict. <laughs> and that's the most frustrating thing in the world as a coach. Because <laughs> I tell you what, I have had my share of, man, everything's going really well with this athlete. They're really excited. They're really engaged. They're competitively, you know, ripe. And then they just, you know, lay an egg. And then I've also had the exact inverse happen as but, well. Like, but, you know, that's reality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that shows that, like, you're an, uh, you have natural athletes, right? And you are a natural coach. And, like... That's why when when everyone freaks out about like, oh, like how fast are we going to run in the marathon and this and this, especially in the marathon, it's like, God knows, you can't predict that stuff. I've had I've had people with phenomenal buildups and then just blow up and bomb. I've oh, had, yeah, like Sarah Hall, like exactly. the two marathons she ran like a, a year or two ago. Yep. Yeah. It was phenomenal buildup. I was like... I know, you're like, oh, she's going to run really well. She's going to get it. And then it's like egg later. yeah and she's one of the toughest racers i know so it's it you know it's it that's what happens that's like that's the real world that's planning everything to the t that you can and you know it just happens that's shows the complexity of the human being from a physical emotional psychological standpoint well um, often we under address our coping mechanisms like how do people cope when things aren't going well, the chips are down. That is, to me, is something that should be trained. You know, like, what's the coping ability? And the coping ability soft, if it's, you know, if yeah. it cracks lightly, you, you're in trouble. Exactly. And I think that's that's something that, you know, we've started to emphasize a lot as a program, program is where your mind goes in a race is where you should train it to go in practice, Right. And you should develop those coping abilities under stressful situations and, like, repeatedly ingrain them so that you have somewhere to go and and gain the flexibility to have several different coping mechanisms to, to get you through, through tough times. Because I think the other misnomer is that, like, people see these, like, elite athletes, like, you know, whoever, Kipchoge in the marathon, and they think, oh, they're superhuman. They can just do anything. And the reality is... Those same like negative thoughts, that same pain, it goes through their head just as it would you or me. And they have to figure out ways to cope with it. And sometimes I think what happens going back to the high school stars and translating is that, and I can tell you this from my experience, is like I had a really good coping strategy for like me going out hammering, dealing with the internal pain because that's all I did. I didn't use rabbits or anything like like these guys now i remember at the district meet running 401 just leading the whole way um but i had great coping strategies for that what i didn't have great coping strategies for is going out and doing that and having someone pass me you know at 1200 meters and then developing a strategy how to react and and like keep my mind settled and keep doing my thing and i think that 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 flexibility is lost especially when you make the jump too early because the way you develop those coping strategies is by putting yourself in a myriad of different situations 
that some go well, some, some fail and like seeing what works and seeing what doesn't and learning from it. But if you're only stuck in a situation where I'm the best or I'm dominating this or I'm in the front pack or when you get to the pros, I'm, I'm in a time trial race and sitting and hanging on, then you don't develop that myriad of strategies to help get you through any situation. Expectation is the killer of joy. And what happens with, you know, when you do something phenomenal at a young age, then there's this expectation that you should know how to repeat it as you did. Like Steve runs 401. You all Steve, you should run at least at worst 401 now forever. (laughs) And it's like, no, that's not, that's not the case at all. And what happens is, you know, judgment sadly ends up being an interference. And when judgment's an interference, it takes away all the spark of enthusiasm and excitement that you had for just showing up and experiencing what is, you know, and a lot, and a lot of my like um, guidance now with athletes is not about, Oh, I'm going to go win this race coach or, Oh, I'm going to run this pace and try to run a PR. And Oh, I'm trying to, you know, X, Y, Z beat this person. It's like, Hey, just show up, experience what you can experience on the day without judgment. Notice it. But don't put a good or bad on it. And the tough part is, right, we live in this perfectionist culture where you have to have it, the whole plan laid out, you know, five-year plan, 10-year plan. You have to have, you know, PowerPoint, you know, slides up the yin-yang for every little thing. And you have to have the training in an Excel sheet and, you know, the, for the whole year, just here's how it's going to go. And you're, you're making these bold predictions. But last time I checked – even the best predictive experts with the most, you know, um, with the sharpest tools, meteorologists, they get it wrong most of the time. <laughs> so what makes us think that without like the sharpest, you know, billion dollars in tools at our disposal, like most meteorologists have, that we can get it right with such a complex, you know, infrastructure and system of the human body? Well, it, it's scientific and hubris and a little bit and arrogance. Like, um, mm-hmm. It's this belief that, you know, if we're we're advanced enough now and we have the knowledge base and the measurement toolkit to be able to predict these things. And no matter how many times it comes wrong or proves wrong, like we don't learn from it and we don't learn the humility to use it. I mean, you go back every decade and there's some prediction made that like, oh, this is going to change the world or this is going to save everything. Even if you go back like human genome genetics, like, mm-hmm. oh, we'll, we'll do this and then we'll have it figured out. And then we do that and it's like, oh, shit, it's really complex. And the same <laughs> same thing is happening now with like brain stuff, right? Oh, oh yeah. like we'll, we'll measure. We, we have fMRI. We can measure all this blood flow in our brain. We're going to figure it out. Oh, shit. It's super complex, more so than we thought. Well, the same thing happens in racing, right? It's like, oh, we can measure VO2 max and running economy and lactate threshold and I can predict I can predict your performance. And it's like, no, you give me all that data and you can predict whether someone who is an elite runner is better than someone who is an average runner. Great. Congratulations. But if I line up 30 elite runners and you have all that data in front of you and that's it. You can't pick the winner. You can't pick the t- who will finish in the top five. It's imp- it doesn't work. So, and I think that that shows at every level is that everything is always a little more complex than we think it is. Oh, and that's the value of running the race. You know, the form charts really go to form. And that's what I love about championship time of year. It's like, there's all these form charts. People have gone to such lengths to predict the outcome. And, you know, when it, when they're right, they're like, oh, I told you so. And then when they're wrong, like, oh, well, it's just educate, guess. <laughs> it's like there's no penalty. There's only reward. But the most exciting thing is when the form charts are completely off and, you know, a dark horse, quote unquote, comes out of nowhere. But that person wasn't a dark horse in their mind. Like the, the gal who, you know, won the NCAA Indoor Mile this year from Sanford. She wasn't a dark horse in her mind. In her mind, she was like, yes, it's very clear. I want to be a professional runner. I want to compete at a high level. And to do that, the first step is winning an NCAA title. So I'm going to give myself permission to go and train and win an NCAA title, even though no one else thinks I have a shot. 
boom, she did it. And that's beautiful. And I hope she keeps that mentality and I hope she keeps that openness. Because again, we live in this perfectionist society and most people are uncomfortable without a standard for right or wrong. And that's the what the judgment judgmental mind does is it we create these artificial, well, this is the proper way to do it. This is the non-proper way to do it. If I would have told you the best way to win an Olympic steeplechase is to train for six weeks before the Olympic steeplechase and train three times a day and your first run is a longer run, eight to ten miles. Your second run is a five-mile tempo run and your third run is a hard track session where you're just sprinting over hurdles set 30 meters apart from each other, three hurdles set 30 meters apart from each other, down a straight away. And you just do that as many times until you're exhausted. You be like, and then after that, you have a nice scotch and a cigar that night. You're like, there's no way. Reality is, the only American to ever win a gold medal in the steeplechase, that was his training. <laughs> uh, what's his name? Horish uh, Ashenfeld. Yes. So he was an FBI agent, couldn't train during the day, and he was a family man. So during the during when he was working, he would go at 10 o'clock at night to the track at 10 p.m. in the dark. So every wannabe elite, wannabe pro runner who's like, oh, I have to work a part-time job at a shoe store. I can't, uh, can't take naps. Listen up. 10 p.m. he would go and run at the track after work, after putting his bed to kid, after putting his kids to bed after dinner. And then he'd get six weeks off before the Olympics, you know, and from the FBI and say, hey, go train for the Olympics for six weeks. That was his training. Three runs a day. Easy, medium, hard, in that order for six <laughs> weeks, finishing off a cigar and a scotch. What he do? He won a gold medal and set the world record in the steeplechase. So it, it, when you read things like that, right? To me, it's not. I'm not trying to laugh in the face of everyone, but what I'm trying to say is, or say, oh, you guys are all wrong with all the science and you know taking it all so seriously. But what we have now with this density of knowledge and this density of measurements, which are very valuable, but we need to know how to use them, and we also need to be open to the ability to say, hey, that measure might not be as have as much weight as we're investing in it right now, and that's okay. But it's still something to consider. Because there have been paths laid before us by pioneers that were maybe a lot more rigorous, maybe a lot more difficult, that have proved to be successful for them. Now, I don't know if that's the right thing to replicate. I don't think Evan Jager is going to start replicating that model anytime soon. <laughs> but you never know. <laughs> uh, I mean, I could definitely see like Kim Boy doing that for sure. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and then doing a little dance. But that's the fun of it, right? That's the excitement of it. And what crushes my enthusiasm for the sport sometimes is hearing coaches talk about their proven, flawless, 100% guaranteed training methodology and model. And I can plug anyone into this and I'm going to make them into, you know, uh, someone who's going to run this fast or win this race or this championship. And to me, that's where you kill the exploratory effort of what we're doing because well, every year is different. Well, it's also, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the timing of this a little bit is in the in Kipchoge, Decisa, and Tedese, the three athletes in the that sub two marathon project. Anyways, it this, hasn't happened yet. We're recording this before this happens. Yes, very true. But uh, the point isn't to talk about that. But the point is, all these scientists and researchers tracked all their training, right? And um, beforehand, one, some of the journalists asked, "What surprised you?" And they were like, how slow they ran on their normal days. They were just shocked. And <laughs> here you have like three of the best guys in the world, arguably the best marathoner um, perhaps in history. And, you know, all these guys are shocked. Like, why? That's slower than everything we predicted. That's slower than our models say. That's slower than like our charts say. And, you know, if you were to ask, you know, any coach who has some knowledge of East African training and has watched them shuffle around and watch them circle around grass fields at, at yeah. meets even. Yes, poly poly. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. Like, you know that and you see that and you respect that. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, I, as I try to get American westernized athletes to be like, hey, guys, poly poly, chill, 
out, please. Like, it has been a year and a half battle to get Tara Walling to run her easy runs at slower than eight minute pace. Like, just trust me. Just trust me. Just slow, easy days. Less. Oh, I can't do it. I can't. Just, just do it. And finally, thank the Lord, <laughs> she's she's converted. <laughs> but it's yes. It, I mean, it, it's that coach's wisdom. It's that athlete's wisdom. It's like this feels good. This feels right. Right. This is what I need. It, it's that that understanding that, that hey, I worked really hard and I feel tired, so I'm going to keep it easy and get what I need to get into to recover. And I think a lot of times in the Western world, what we've done is like almost like convinced ourselves to block out all of the feedback that we're receiving. So anything that tells us like, oh, I'm tired, we just tell ourselves, oh, ignore that push through or, oh, I need this pace. Oh, ignore that. I'm supposed to run at this pace or this heart rate. So push through. And we've we've trained out that that ability to pay attention to our internal feedback and listen to what our body is saying because we have more faith in the data or the numbers or the conversion chart that tells us what pace to run on our easy tempo, you know, interval days. Then we well, do, that fits we with do in the, our internal body. That fits with the, you know, industrial model of, you know, going, you show up at this time and you go through the day and then you get off work at this time. The whistle blows, you start, the whistle blows again, you finish. And there's no, you know, that that guarantees a high volume of quote unquote believed productivity. But we are starting to understand and there's a, getting a body of research to also support people's experiential evidence that shorter, more compact blocks of work, four hours, you know, two hours, yield higher productivity than an eight hour, you know, work day. So if you're just very productive and succinct for that period of time, that makes sense. Like everything else that is about the rhythm of our life, like you don't eat all day long. You have, you know, an, enough of nourishment and then you're nourished and your body processes it for a couple hours. You don't sleep all night. You know, you sleep in chunks of time. You go in and out of REM sleep. There's a pulse, right? And so the idea that we can override this, these internal mechanisms that have been evolving for millions of years is hubris. And I think sometimes you have to have enough confidence as a coach to say, well, look, we had this plan today. I mean, I do this so often now. It's it's ridiculous. Like I'll have a workout or a session planned. I'll watch someone, you know, in the warm up and their activation and get that feedback from them too. ask them how they're doing. And it's just like, oh, you're not ready to work out today. Go home. <laughs> like, oh, but I got, no, you don't. Like, you're not going to get anything out of the session today. And that goes back to having the experience and the confidence and experience without, you know, a right or wrong judgment just to witness and notice what is in front of you, just to see clearly and say, this person's not ready to do this thing that was planned today. And that's okay. But your PowerPoint says they should be. But you know what? It's very, very difficult to get a fra- such a fragile creature as is a human being to repeat these enormous feats of strength over and over and over again. And it's a you know people wonder why NBA players kind of like mail it in during the regular season now because the playoffs are so damn competitive and they go it's so intense they're essentially readying their body for the whole season for the playoffs and same thing too like. Why people, you know, the high elite pros in the marathon don't necessarily race as much as they did in the past because now for a male to be competitive, you have to run 207 to 205. Back in the days of Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers, you just had to run 215. That that 10 minutes difference in the marathon is very hard on the body. Yes, we can do it, but it takes a lot longer to recover from than if I'm running 215 three or four times, you know, in a year. It's like, say, oh, Steve, remind me of the name, the um, working, the Japanese marathon or the working oh, class yeah. guy. I mean, he's, he's running fast, but not crazy fast, yep. you know, but he's able to do it because the speed of play isn't quite as intense. Yeah, you, you know, it, it's funny. Just a, a quick plug in peak performance uh, book. We talk about some of those our, things. Our awesome title sponsor. There, there we go. Book. June 2nd, June 6th, June 6th, okay, 6-6, uh, but you, you know, I think, I think what that point illustrates there is how much of our, um, our norms are social and cultural, 
And I, I've been, I just finished up a fabulous book called How Emotions Are Made. And it talks about how essentially emotions are constructed and are highly cultural and social too. In the sense that if you look at words for emotions in Russia or Scandinavia or wherever, they have words for emotions that don't exist in the U.S. They have, um, variety and shades of gray on different emotions that we don't have here and we don't have a corresponding feeling or understanding and because they have that word they have an entire like construction of this feeling that we can't describe in the u.s and if you sit back and you think about that for a little bit it's it's crazy to think um but it has huge implications right if we look at fatigue or we look at you know, preparation, anxiety for a race, like a lot of that is socially constructed in the sense that, you know, how you view races and anxiety and how you judge it and how you view fatigue, whether it's a good thing, a bad thing, a signal that you should simply change the workout or back off on the run versus something that, oh my gosh, I should push through and, and put my head down or something negative that shows that, like, I'm not ready. However you view it is going to create the reality of what it does, uh, essentially, right? Our perceptions are our are reality. And I think that that understanding has um, gigantic implications, many of which you just uh, talked about. Well, feeling is knowing. Like, when I feel something, I know it. That is the direct experience, right? And, you know, there's been many studies that suggest uh, people who speak m- multiple languages, two, three, four, are very m- more inclined to be artistic because, like you just said, in different languages, there's different expressions to communicate different feelings. And how many poems and songs and books and articles and essays are written on love? You know, it's one of those things, it's like, you know when you're in love and you definitely know when you're not in love. <laughs> but to articulate concisely what love is, is going to be a near impossibility in no matter whatever, what human language you have. Yes, you might be able to get cl- very, very close to it. And this is this long philosophical discussion, you know, that the Greeks have had about the different types of love and this and that. But all we can do with language is get close to the direct feeling and sensation. We can never exactly express it. And it's how every, even like say in the um, Jewish tradition, you know, the word for God, Yahweh, actually just a placeholder because you can't really express in their view, God, you know, because any way we express it actually falls short of the magnificence that is this being and this entity, this idea. And when we understand that is a truth and a fundamental belief in a lot of worldviews and religions and languages, we then can transfer that to training. We then can transfer that to readiness and preparation coaching. And we can understand that the models that are in place that you see at the conferences, that you see in these nice, neat PowerPoints that you see in these articles, they are close approximations. And that's all they are approximations because the thing that is the direct feeling and reality is what that person is experiencing in that moment. And not all that are experiencing can they verbally communicate to you. That's why you need to be super present at practice as a coach and watch on the difficult days what's going on and not correct or give feedback on every rep, but just notice. And nine times out of 10, if you notice long enough and bite your tongue a little bit, it will, the athlete will magically iron out the things that aren't going well because we as evolutionary beings have self-corrected to survive. Same deal here at practice. Now, when you're noticing trends that aren't going anywhere, then you pipe up, in my opinion, and you give that critical cue and say, hey, are you experiencing this? Are you feeling this? Are you aware of this? And they very well might be, but in a different context than you're noticing, or they might not be at all. And then you can have a conversation about the work. But that, to me, is a key separation and understanding between the knowledge you get in the classroom or sitting down and looking at a screen, which that approximation can only get you a little bit closer to being ready to have that deep wisdom 
that comes with experience. Right. One of my favorite uh, scientists, I think Richard Dawkins once said that models are um, close enough to be right, um, but without all the messy details. And the point of that is that the only way we can create a model of that is to get rid of some of the messy details that, that confound it all. We have to make assumptions that that allow us to work with it because a model is essentially giving us something that is usable and allows us to conceptualize something um, so that we can apply it to a broader scope than just saying copying this individual um, this individual you know word for word so the model gets us almost there so that we can apply it but what we miss out on those things is when people take that model and apply it to the individual without acknowledging those assumptions and those messy details and i think that's where you get that experience first powerpoint approach is whenever you see someone and you have that hour-long conversation with them or sit down for their presentation realize what they're telling you is just a mod, an idealized model. Because as coaches, what do we do? Do we go up and say, hey, I'm going to present all the crappy things that went wrong and then we had to fix? Or am I going to go out and present my training program um, as it happened? But, you know, we'll ignore this breakdown on the track on Monday on, you know, in June. And we'll ignore like this when this athlete got sick or had broke up with her boyfriend or girlfriend and how we had to adjust there, we're just going to present like the idealized version of how we got from point A to point B. And what people do is they make the mistake that that path is a straight line path and that, that if they just follow this presentation, they'll get there. And I think what John and I are, are trying to get across is that when you have skin in the game, when you get out, into the trenches and start coaching, you notice all these things that have never been brought up in the textbook that no one ever talks about in the presentations. Um, hopefully we're changing that a little bit, but that you never, that you never see. And those things are things that matter that you never could have imagined and paying attention to them and realizing, um, the importance they have is probably one of the key lessons for any developing coach. And remember, the wabi-sabi can stay. That's okay. Like that imperfection is part of what makes that individual, that buildup, that training plan, all that unique. That's fine. That's you know, that's what that's life. That's it, that's what that's the beauty of it. You know, so many times, you know, an athlete might come back from um, you know a physical therapist or some type of physio, and if they're a younger one. They'll come back and be like, oh, well, they told me like this glute isn't activating and firing at all and this isn't doing this and this is stuck and that's stuck. And I go, mm, you know, you ran like two for the 100 as a female, right? Like I, I think things are working, but <laughs> it's just not optimal right now. And the but, younger, you know, physios and PTs like have this model. It's like, oh, well, this didn't turn on when I did this exact exercise. And I go, well, there's no way you can run too flat without your glutes turning on. You know what I mean? But, you know, I think the other point of that is we have this idea that, like, oh, everything should be optimal, but it's never optimal. No, never. <laughs> like, it, you know, I, it's like people model all this stuff and they say, oh, like the optimal human being, if they have this category and this and this and this and this, they can run this. And it's like, well, that's great, but no one ever is going to be optimal. And, and you're optimal for what you do. Like, sorry, I'm going to get on my soapbox of PTs, and I love you guys, but sometimes, you know. Hey, I'm married to one, so go, go ahead. There you go. Um, but it, it's like we've had individuals who have compensated, who have developed patterns of movement, who have developed ways of running to make sure that their body can handle it. And sometimes that's going to be different from the idealized model, but they've figured it out, and their body is pretty smart and they've had no problems so let's keep rolling with it and i think that this mis misnotion that you know we need to have one exact way to run or one exact way to move really hurts athletes because what it does is it creates this fragility where it's like 
whenever I send athletes sometimes to the training room, it's like they come back and they say, like you just said, like my glutes not firing and, you know, this turns on a little bit late and this has a slight internal rotation and they come back with four or five different things that we need to correct. And I just watch them run, you know, um, I don't know, a 4.0 mile and they, they're they on the top of their world in terms of their fitness and what they're doing. Now, I'm not saying to discount all of that information, but I'm what I am saying is like take into consideration the person standing in front of you and their individual characteristics versus saying versus being on this search for something wrong. Because I think what happens is we we're love to contribute. So we look for things that are wrong that we can fix. And if we tell the athlete that all this stuff is wrong, then we're creating this pattern in their mind that, oh my gosh, like I have to fix this and something is wrong with me. Well, in presentation matters, right? How you present that information is key. Like if I want an athlete to like say lose weight and lose and you just say oh, lose weight. Like well, what does that mean? You can lose water weight, you can lose fat, you can lose muscle. So you can't just be like, oh, hey, lose weight. You're, you know, lose fat. Well, how do I do that? I don't say that to someone or drop five pounds. Like you, I mean, that's an easy, sloppy way to make someone very insecure. And when uh, you see, uh, you know, uh, a physio or a PT or anyone, you know, of that kind of medical authority, and they say something similar like, okay, hey, you, you're not proficient in these five areas. All of a sudden, that person leaves your office very insecure. So if I notice like an athlete might have some extra fat on them that they shouldn't have for whatever reason, I might be like, hey, is there anything in your diet that is a luxury or a snack or isn't good for you that you could give up? Anything at all. And they might be like, oh, yeah, coach, you know, you know, I've been going to, you know, McDonald's and getting the like the, the, the double, the double Big Mac. I'm like, yeah, I should probably give that one up. <laughs> You know, so you have that conversation about, hey, just, and then it's like, is running, you know, is getting better and faster, more important to you in the next four months or four weeks? I'm like, yeah, it is. Well, if you want to do that, I would suggest giving up those things that you're consuming that might not be the most healthy or the most nourishing that you, you, you could live without, you know, if that's, if we're aligned. And so that's a much better dialogue to have than say, lose five pounds. Even though you know you you it, the result is exactly the the aim of the result is exactly the same, same deal here, right? It, if it's an aligned uh, communication between the coach and the athlete and the physio and the sports scientist or the biomechanist or what have you, then you guys everyone can help craft a strategy to get that person to where we all want them to see, which is at their best. And sometimes their best is going to be, like I said, there's going to be a wabi-sabi. There's going to be asymmetry. That's okay. I have never met anyone that's entirely symmetrical. Yes, we live in a Western culture that champions symmetry and the most beautiful people are the people who have the most symmetrical faces. That's fine. Okay. But I've seen people who have ran very, very fast, very compelling, in spite of their glutes not firing, <laughs> in spite of one leg being longer than the other, in spite of some excessive pronation on the right leg versus the left leg. I've seen this happen so many times. So, you know, it's not that I'm totally discounting that. It's, okay, Does is it a liability and is it something that you need to track and maybe work take steps towards correcting and strengthening or bettering so it doesn't become a liability that puts them on the sidelines in the future? Yes. What's the strategy? So there, I think, again, how you transfer that knowledge or that information or how you communicate to the athletes, that subtle, you know, presentation and critiquing your presentation can have compounding interest on how it's received. Yeah, 100%. How the message comes across is just as important as the actual message you're being sent. So I hate to cut us off, John, but I'm getting called to long jump duty. So all right, the man, the master. I think. Are you gonna, you know, hopefully start coaching the the deck here in five, you, ten years? You know, maybe. If, if <laughs> taking, this, you're just noticing, taking notes. If this distance running thing doesn't work out, then you know. Um, well, look, to, your mentor Telez coached everything. He so did. I, he did. He coached coached it all. So trying trying to learn. 
Um, but it also shows that we have skin in the game here. So thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for listening, everybody. I hope you guys enjoyed uh, this one again, looking at experience versus PowerPoint. And if I could sum it up really quickly, it's that, you know, experience matters and that models are great. They're useful, all that stuff. But like, don't forget that they leave out the messy details and that you need to get your hands dirty and go in and coach. Messy is good. Messy is good. But you know what? Neat is nice. And if you want something really nice that is neat, get Steve's new book, Peak Performance, June 6th. (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot, everybody. (laughs) All right, people. Love you. We're giving you what you want. We'll be back soon.